Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. If you agree with me that sympathy alone has no place in rendering a proper verdict, please raise your hand. All the hands instantly go up because everybody agrees. You're not going to win a case on sympathy. Now, that accomplishes a couple of things, but the main thing for me is it starts to overcome the the preconceived notion they have that I'm a predator. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, this is the uh, Great Trials podcast, and I am your host, Steve Lowry, and with me, as always, is Yvonne Godfrey. How are you doing, Yvonne? I'm good. You, I thought you were going to try not to say as always. I know. I know. I, it's it's now. It's like stuck in there as a habit. I just can't do it anymore. And, <laughs> and for a second there, I, I think I almost forgot the name of the show. Like, what, what yeah, you can't. Again? You can't get too thrown off. I feel like you know. Right. It's right. comforting and familiar. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, well, Yvonne, I know you are excited today because we have uh, our guest today is someone who is uh, from very close to your hometown. Uh, Yvonne, you grew up in Franklin, Tennessee, and our guest today is from Nashville, Tennessee. Yes, I am. I am very excited to go back to my roots, and I'm I'm really excited to talk about this case. It's it's really interesting and scary. It's a tragic case and and a, a sad case uh, and a tremendous result. Uh, let me, uh, without uh, uh, holding this out any longer, let me just go ahead and introduce our guest today. It's Randy Kennard. Randy is a partner at Kennard Clayton and Beverage, and he's based in Nashville, Tennessee. And you can look up Randy at KennardClaytonAndBeverage.com. I'm going to spell that just in case it- Anybody doesn't know how to spell it? Canard is K-I-N-N-A-R-D. Clayton is C-L-A-Y-T-O-N. And Beverage, B-E-V-E-R-I-D-G-E.com. Canard, Clayton, and Beverage.com. Randy, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Well, it, like we said, it's uh, it, it's good uh, good to talk to you in this case, uh, which we'll get into a lot more, uh, is just, I mean, it's a, it's a tragic case. And... Uh, and uh, obviously, the result of some very good work in what I take uh, is not the best of counties in Tennessee or not known as being a great uh, plaintiff's venue in, in Tennessee, Weekly County, Tennessee. Well, Weekly County is a rural county in West Tennessee. The town where this case was tried is 5,000 people. So oh, wow. That was a problem. Yeah, I, I've I've tried I tried a case in a in a town of nine thousand one time, and uh, everybody on the jury knew each other. The only person that nobody knew was me, the lawyer standing. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, um, well, Randy, I want to introduce our, uh, our, our listeners to you. And, uh, and Yvonne, I was looking at, at Randy's uh, resume and what he's done in his life. And, you know, we, I have to say that we get a lot of very impressive lawyers on this show who've had uh, fantastic uh, accomplishments, especially in, in law. But uh, Randy, I got to say, is probably the first certified badass that uh, we've had on the show. <laughs> 
that's the that's the actual certification. That's what it's called. (laughs) Exactly. Well, let let me tell you what goes into a certification for a badass. So, uh, so Randy went to West Point, uh, uh, fantastic college, military college, Um, and uh, then he he became an Airborne Ranger, and he was in the 173rd Airborne Brigade. He was a lieutenant. He had 250 men under his command, and he served in Vietnam. Uh, and let me just go through some of the medals that he won in, uh, while he was serving his country. He got the Vietnamese Cross of Gallantry, the Bronze Star for Valor, the Purple Heart, and he got the Combat Air Medal and, and had 28 air assaults that he did while he was over in Vietnam. So, uh, I mean, and that's all, Randy did all of that before he became a lawyer and decided to start helping people in the courtroom. So, uh, uh, like I said, I mean, that is uh, 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 a tremendous accomplishment and and uh, and Randy we you know thank you for your service and uh, and you obviously uh, uh, served the country well thank you so much Dave thank you well and then, and then let me tell you about some of the stuff you've done in your legal career because that's not too shabby either I, um, I believe that also falls under the the certification <laughs> the, for badass Right, right, exactly. <laughs> well, so Randy has has tried uh, more than 250 trials, including uh, the $55 million verdict on behalf of Aaron Andrews uh, against uh, uh, the person who was stalking her and a hotel chain uh, where, if anybody recalls, uh, he was using a peephole and taking videos and uh, pictures and things like that. And uh, Randy presented Aaron in that case and got a $55 million verdict on her behalf. Randy has also been a president of the Tennessee Association for Justice and uh, is a member of the Inner Circle of Advocates. So, uh, so again, Randy, um, uh, not only do you have great legal accomplishments, but just great, uh, great accomplishments uh, for serving your country. Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. Well, uh, let's talk about this case. And I, Randy, I'll give a, a quick rundown. You can tell me where I've messed up in the, in the facts, but I, I, I read everything and I, I feel like I understand it pretty well. This uh, involved uh, it, what happened to Cody Lee Wade. Cody was 17 years old when he was involved in a single vehicle collision. Uh, and as a result of that, had suffered some injuries, including a, a head injury, a lacerated liver, a collapsed lung, and a broken collarbone. And he was taken to the hospital, and, um, was intubated, uh, and was in the hospital for, I think, about three weeks. And uh, during that time, his uh, surgeon tried to extubate him or, or take out his, um, his uh, tracheostomy tube. Uh, he had some uh, respiratory distress, so they re-intubated him, uh, and then he was transferred to a uh, rehabilitation hospital called Health South Cane Creek Rehabilitation Hospital. And while he was there, he was under the care of a doctor named Susan Lowry. And I should just say, even though she spells her name correctly, uh, she is no relation to me that I know of. Um, but uh, he, so he was under the care of, of them, and. Um, while he was at the care at Cane Creek, uh, he was extubated again, um, and this was done before he had gotten a checkup by his doctors, which they had asked for before they tried to um, to take him off of his tracheostomy tube. And while he was off of the tracheostomy tube, he started complaining of having trouble breathing, of um, you know having something in his throat. His doctor, Dr. Lowry, uh, kind of assumed that it was either mucus or um, 
that he was just anxious. So she prescribed him Xanax. Uh, and then later on, uh, actually early the next morning, he goes into full respiratory distress, was taken to the hospital and suffered a cardiac arrest on the way. And um, uh, he was brought back and survived, but uh, had suffered a severe and permanent an anoxic brain injury. Um, and uh, this case was tried, as I said, in Weekly County, Tennessee, uh, which is a rural uh, county in western Tennessee. The name of the case is Wade versus Health South Cane Creek Rehabilitation Hospital and Susan Lowry, MD. And there were some other defendants in there as well. But uh, the verdict at the end of, uh, of the tremendous work that Randy did on it was a verdict of $15,261,070.80. So uh, that's the, the, the basics of the case. Uh, Randy, I mean, maybe first, I guess I'd love to hear from you. When you go into a small county of 5,000 people, um, how, how do you approach that and, and, uh, and try and make it so that you can connect with those people as best possible? First, you leave your Lexus or your Mercedes at home. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Do not drive to town in one of those. Right. So yeah. I borrowed my partner's pickup truck. Uh, it drove into Weekly County, parked near the courthouse. And I get in and out of that thing every day. And we stayed at a motel 20 miles away. But the thing you got to do in a rural county is uh, learn what the people are like there. And you can go, you know, at a local restaurant. And I did that yeah. week before, weeks before the trial and sat down and just talked to people. I drove around the county looking at homes in the high school and noticed a large National Guard a post, uh, a large National Guard outfit, which was very good to learn because of my military experience. So I knew I wanted, people say, don't take right-wing soldiers and stuff like that or veterans. I want veterans. Right. So but that's how you get to know them. Then ask local lawyers about the judge and kind of get a feel for the area. Right, right. And, and I saw, it looked like you had a, a, a local counsel there who was helping you out with the case. Did he help you pick the jury? Roy Heron was the local counsel. He was a former state senator, actually, and, a, and a kind of a big wheel in this area. And he did help with some, some people. The other side had a professional jury consultant. <laughs> and that always works in a, in a town of 5,000. <laughs> he did not do a very good job. I think he came from a large city. <laughs> he just didn't get it. But yeah, Roy helped a lot picking the jury. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I completely agree with you. Spending time in that town, I, I, in the times that I've done that, I can tell you while when I first you know pick a jury, usually nobody knows me. By the end of those cases, a lot of times you know uh, many people in town, uh, and um, and actually make good connections with them. Right. Well, um, well, tell us about this, uh, this case and some of the, uh, um, the, I guess, obstacles in the case. Because from what I noticed uh, from the pretrial order that you sent us, that it looked like you had um, uh, about uh, eight to ten experts. So it was a very expert-heavy case. And, 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 uh, and how you went about trying that to a jury that uh, you know, is from a more rural area and maybe not as uh, 
maybe not as educated as a city, a, a jury that's uh, closer to a city? Maybe not as educated formally. I right. think we'd agree that if you took an average poll of jurors, they, their level of education would not be as great as Nashville or Atlanta or someplace like that. But I love, love country juries because they have so much great practical knowledge, common sense. And I like to try a case on common sense, really. Yeah. Uh, the number of experts didn't bother me except that it was going to take a long time. I think this trial took five weeks. And uh, so that is an endurance contest for everybody. One of the biggest problems we had and that we were facing was the fact that Cody drove his own pickup truck. He was angry at his girlfriend for an argument they had, and he drove off the road. He was not seat belted. When they found him, he was outside the truck. So that was going to be a problem of how to overcome that. We filed a motion in Lemony that, uh, the way the wreck happened was not admissible, but everybody knew, we all knew, the jury's going to know he got thrown from that truck. Right. So that was a problem. Another problem, a significant problem was, from the injuries he, he caused to himself, he was going to be disabled for life. He was going <clears> to <throat> never walk normally. He'd have limitations. And they were, of course, able to prove that. And they called one of these fancy experts that uh, said he was going to be 100% disabled no matter what happened with his trachea. So that was a problem. And that, uh, to some extent, kept the damages down, in my view, because he was not going to be perfect. And I said he was not going to be perfect to the jury. And we didn't try to go for, you know, a $50 million verdict or something like that. Those were the big issues we faced before we even started. This episode of The Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services, or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document, and your technology has frozen or not worked. No joke, Steve, that has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day in the life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials Podcast. And that's Legal Technology Services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com. That's LTSAtlanta.com. Well, and how did you, in, in looking at the case and, and working it up, how were you able to um, 
you know, both evaluate the case sort of as you were moving forward, but then help the jury understand the difference between the injuries and impairment that he would have had as a result of the initial accident versus what had happened to him, um, which just sounds absolutely horrible and terrifying, Um, you know, basically slowly suffocating. But how did you help them understand the difference in what had in what his injuries were and what his life would be like because of what had happened to him with his tracheostomy? First, I think for people listening to this, blunt, direct honesty is essential. And uh, don't try to call somebody something he's not. Go ahead and admit he was going to be hurt on the front end. And they appreciate that honesty. That way you don't have to fight that then. You just admit it. But the way we got around that problem in a large part was to take the rehab records where he was, occupational therapy notes, speech therapy, these kinds of things, and show he was improving at the rehab facility. He walked 30 feet this morning. Next day, he walked 50 feet this morning. You know, steadily progressing, doing better. And then we had uh, the appropriate expert address that and say, given that he was improving and all this, I think he was going to be really pretty good, maybe 80% of the way he was before. Then counting on the fact that the malpractice, in our view, was so bad, we believe the jury is going to want to believe that anyway because they're not going to forgive, hopefully, this malpractice. Right. And, I mean, just from, uh, um, you know, other than the the damages or the things that they could pick on, like he was already going to be injured, I mean, what was their explanation for why why this was done and why, you know, as he's complaining about having difficulty breathing, I mean, I, I understand that it was treated as basically, he was given Xanax and it was kind of treated as anxiety, but was that it? I mean, in front of the jury, what was their explanation for basically giving no attention to the fact that this this young man was telling them he, he couldn't breathe? This is the essence of the case right here at the point you just made. What was their defense? What's the counter to this? How could you do this? What's the explanation for your conduct? And essentially it was that he was in their view, and this is a quote out of the medical record, an anxious kid, 17 years old. That was the biggest mistake anybody ever made in this case. And then the lawyers argued he was just an anxious kid. I wrote down in the opening statement, I think they used that phrase maybe 30 times or something. He was an anxious kid. And did they pay for that in my first sentence in closing argument? I mean, I could give it to you now if you want me to. (laughs) I do. (laughs) So they referred to him as an anxious kid. He was 17 in a rural county. And what the other side apparently didn't appreciate is that 11-year-old boys, 12-year-old boys out there are driving tractors. Right. Right, yeah. And then I told them, 
the true story that in Vietnam, the first man I saw bleed to death right in front of me in a firefight was 18 years old, and he was no kid. And I zipped him up in a body bag, and he was no kid. And Cody was 17, and he was no kid. And he kept telling them, my problem is in my throat. Yeah. And they kept saying, it's in his head. That became the thing of the case. Yeah. And it sort of violates all the, uh, you know, uh, rules of what you, when you do a differential is you never assume that it's the, the, the least, uh, of, of what could be going wrong. You always assume the worst until you prove you uh, rule that out. And it sounds like this, this doctor just, uh, decided, well, he's anxious. Don't really need to listen to him. Let's move on. There you go. And those were the first few moments of my closing argument. And I stood there and I, and I, you know, I anchored myself right next to a flip chart. I never moved from that position the whole time. I never used a PowerPoint. I just looked at each juror in the eyes. And by the way, I think you have to look each juror in the eyes in closing argument. Well, the one you don't is going to be the leader against you. Right, right. <laughs> and then at the end, I said, uh, oh, by the way, the defense, I believe, will use a lot of PowerPoints up here. <laughs> get up because that's their style. And uh, I said, I haven't used anything fancy here. Go out in the wild and do the right thing. And then sure enough, they got up there for two and a half hours and PowerPointed them to death. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> they, they had spent so much time and money on that, they couldn't go away from it. <laughs> oh. That's good. Well, you know, that brings up a really interesting point, Randy, because, you know, we, we talk about this a lot when we're getting ready for trial. And I know lawyers talk about it all the time is, you know, how much do you use between, uh, you know, sort of the flip chart? How much do you use between uh, PowerPoints or other t- types of demonstrative? I, I uh, you know, frankly, I like to use a mix of both. I mean, I love using a flip chart, especially on cross-examination. Um, you know, and it's, it's just one of the most effective ways to really bring your points home, I think. But, uh, but yet, I mean, so it, it's that was your choice to do the flip chart because of the county you were in, or is that your normal style or how do you, how do you normally approach that? I love the flip chart. And let me tell you a, a story about why it's been underscored. I've been using the flip chart ever since I started. I do use PowerPoint. It's not that I'm technologically well, I am technologically. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can get somebody else to do it in the courtroom. Okay. Right, right. <laughs> but, but I use the flip, flip chart in the Aaron Andrews case, which was televised nationally. And a couple of weeks after that jury uh, rendered its verdict, I was at a restaurant and the waiter said, I saw you on TV. Hey, I saw you at the board. <laughs> I went, you mean the flip chart? He went, yeah, yeah, whatever you call that thing. But to him, it was like a teacher going to the chalkboard. Oh, I see. That teacher. <clears throat> they like, it puts you right there. You're the teacher. 
and and you can become animated and dealing with like you said steve on cross-examination uh with an expert you become kind of part of it and just using powerpoint you know I, it's it has its great advantages but you just don't want to overdo it I think. yeah great, great tool Right, right. Well, and it's, I think it's easier, you know, especially if you're, if you're making your points and you're writing, you're writing the point or you're, or you're charting something out or whatever it is while the jury's watching, I think it's a lot easier for them to engage with and absorb. And I mean, to, to your point, Randy, it's just like when you're, when you're learning from a teacher, I think it's a lot easier to absorb that when you're sort of seeing it happen. You're seeing, you're seeing the points being made or, or being written down versus when it's all already there on a screen and it all just sort of pops up at one time. I just think there's something about that that's just harder to absorb. I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, you know, some of the things in, in this case we, we talk about in a lot of these cases, especially brain injury, is, um, you know, how you present your client, how you present, um, you know, how, how this has really affected them. I noticed from the pretrial order that, uh, that one of the things that the judge ordered was that the defense was going to be allowed to come into your client's home and do 10 hours worth of a video and so I'm wondering, uh, it, it, can you talk a little bit about how, how, uh, how you um, um, presented Cody to the, to the jury? Did you have him there, um, you know, every day or just brought him in at certain times? And then, and then talk about this, uh, what the defense did with their, uh, their video that they took of, of Cody. What a super question. This is an, always an issue when you're representing someone catastrophically injured. Do I bring him? or her in or not, and if I do, when. So I told the jury to begin with, in Bordier, I don't know if I'm gonna bring Cody into the courtroom or not. If I make the decision, I'm not gonna bring him in, it'll be for a reason I have, will you not hold it against him if I make that decision? One of the things, uh, I never, personally, I never want to do is uh, call on sympathy. Now, let the jury know that from the start. I don't want sympathy. Cody doesn't want sympathy. He gets it all the time. So the defense asked the judge, because they know me, and they know I might not bring him. The defense said, we want to show the jury some video footage of Cody Wade in Vordaer and asked the jury if they can be fair, to which I went ballistic, of course. Yeah. And he allowed them. Wow. And I admire and respect this judge a great deal, but I thought that was not right. And they got to show about three minutes, and it's awful. He's just in a bed. He can't take care of himself. He's in the fetal position, essentially. And they showed that three minutes, and you could... Just the courtroom was just dead silent. And then, of course, comes the question, now, can you be fair to us? This, this young man is hurt. We, of course, we don't think it's our fault, but can you be fair? And then uh, they made a mistake. One woman on the panel 
who got called into the box after somebody got kicked off said, I didn't get to see the video. And she, the defense lawyer said, would you like to see it? Yes. Yeah. So she played it again. That, that was an error. She let it go on for three more minutes. So sometime the judge asked me, are you going to bring him into the courtroom during the proof? I said, I'm not bringing him at all. I'm not right. showing anything. They've seen it, and that's enough. And so in closing, I said, I told you I wasn't going to call on your sympathy. I could have brought him in here in a bed trying to make you cry. We didn't do that. They showed you the video. That's all you needed to see. You get the picture. So that's what happened. Wow, that's interesting. So you didn't do a, a, like a day in the life video or anything? We had it in case we wanted to use it or thought we needed to use it. Uh, so we did have it. We just made the decision we're not going to use it. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and I have to say, I mean, I, you know, I, I guess I understand why the defense wants to do that, uh, but it, it's, it's very risky because the people you leave on that jury, you know, have just really, whether or not sympathy plays into it, I mean, they've just watched this video. And then, and as you pointed out, Randy, that they, they watched it twice because, uh, uh, because they showed it again. So I, I, that's just very, very risky on their part. I think it backfired and uh, they, you know, they do this a lot in baby cases where you have a, a child who's hurt. The same law firm does it. And uh, I think it's a mistake, but that's their business. Right, <laughs> right exactly. Um, well, and, and I think I saw, um, I, I wanted to hear a little bit about, I mean, as we stated already that there were eight to 10 experts and in a case like this where you've got a, a severe brain injury, oftentimes you'll have somebody come in to talk about that the life expectancy of the plaintiff has been reduced in order to you know, reduce the calculation for the value of their life. And I, I thought I saw that you had a uh, life expectancy um, or that the defense had a life expectancy expert. Talk about that a little bit and how that uh, played out. They called this man from St. Louis, I forget his name. And he said maybe four years, life expectancy, something real low like that. Wow. And I'll give you my uh, quick cross-examination of him if you want to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, yes please. <laughs> Takes 60 seconds. <laughs> well, something like this. Doctor, when you came over to uh, Dresden, Tennessee to do your uh, investigation of Cody Wade, did you come in a limousine? <laughs> I did. And when you got up to the house, were you in the back seat or of that limo or were you in the front seat? I was in the back. <laughs> did the driver come around and open the door for you, doctor? He said, yeah, he did. Then you went inside and uh, did whatever you were going to do. Got back out. Was the limo still there? Yeah. How'd you get to court today? Came in a limousine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is it out there somewhere around the courthouse right now? I said, sure. He's waiting on me. Did you ride over in the back seat again? Of course. Well, coming over here, did you work on another case while you were in the back seat of the limo? 
Yes. You're going to charge for your time working on another case? Yes. You're going to charge for your time to these lawyers here for driving over here? Well, of course. Well, we call that double dipping around here, doctor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, uh, have a safe trip back, doctor. now i'm starting to really wish that i was at this trial yeah really (laughs) this sounds like one that was not to be missed then the next day they call another expert and i start to cross-examine and the judge goes lawyers approach the ranch we go up and he he whispered, he said, are you going to ask him if he came over in a limo? <laughs> I said, no, Judge. And he said, that was the funniest thing I ever heard in my life. I just wanted to tell you all that. <laughs> I'm sure the defense loved hearing that. <laughs> well, and I mean, to that point, what were they doing? Were they just letting you do it because they thought if, if whatever they did would just make it look worse? Uh, what do you mean? I mean, like, were they objecting to you asking all the questions about the limo, or were they just sitting there? <laughs> no, no, no. That was totally unexpected. <laughs> you know, they, I guess they didn't know what to do. Oh, I mean, I, I think they couldn't win, right? If they start objecting, right. then it looks like they're, you know, trying to hide something real bad, and, and so... Oh yeah. I mean, if, if, if they object and the judge uh, and the judge uh, grants their objection and you can't talk about it anymore, then the jury probably thinks it's the yeah. uh, craziest limo you've ever heard of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, that's gotta be, well, and I guess, you know, as far as, you know, what you were able to introduce on your, on your end, what sort of life expectancy had your experts put forward? Oh, I think it was about 40 more years. Right. You know, I don't recall exactly, but a good number. Because, yeah. because at trial, because uh, the trial was a few years later after, his, uh, after what had happened to him, and I think he was 23 years old, right? So he's still, still a young guy. That's, that's right. He's still alive, by the way. Right, right, exactly. So we know that that guy was wrong, because this was tried back in uh, 2013. So, uh, that's right. So, so we know their expert was wrong. Yeah. Um, well, um, talk, talk to us a little bit. I mean, uh, when you're in a small county like this, did you do any uh, focus group type work? And if you did, did you do it in Weekly County or did you do that somewhere else? We did it in Weekly County, a very small county. And we did do a focus group. It's very uh, sophisticated, top secret. Right. Very helpful. And I guess it, it, when you were picking your jury, did word get out or anything that there had been a focus group done? No, not that. I don't think so. We, we had a contract that each member of that focus group signed, you know, swearing never to tell anybody about it. And I don't know how good that is, right. but we had that. Nobody had heard of the case on the panel. Uh, everybody knew the doctor, by the way, another problem I forgot to mention was that this defendant doctor was the daughter of the first family doctor in this town. And he set up a practice and was a beloved man in the county. And she was his daughter, family doctor. That was a a hard problem. So all the jurors knew her. Right. 
and uh, yet they put 60% of the fault on her. That's kind of remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, I should, I should mention that at the end, they, they put 40% of the fault on Cane Creek and 60% of the uh, fault on, on Dr. Lowry. Uh, I mean, talk about that a little bit. I mean, how do you, when you've got the daughter of somebody who's beloved in a small county, I mean, how did you, uh, how did you approach that? Well, you just be upfront with them and, and right. say, you know, she is and she's a nice person and she was a nice person. But this is not about personality. This is about conduct. I suppose another way that uh, may be helpful to the listeners when you have this kind of problem is to do the following in vor dire very early. Discuss sympathy. I always do this. And I go to a flip chart, write the word sympathy on the flip chart, draw a little face, a round face. with some eyes, a nose, and a mouth. The mouth is turned down, and teardrops are coming down from the face. Uh, and I write the word sympathy up there. And then I ask the whole panel or the 12 people in the box, depending on what the judge lets us do or requires us to do, and say uh, the following, something like the following. Now I'm going to discuss with you the most important thing in this case that I could talk to you about right now. It's sympathy. If you agree with me that sympathy alone has no place in rendering a proper verdict, please raise your hand. All the hands instantly go up because everybody agrees. You're not going to win a case on sympathy. So they all agree. Now, that accomplishes a couple of things, but the main thing for me is it starts to overcome the the preconceived notion they have that I'm a predator. Right. I'm just a predator. So that's kind of a justice position. It's kind of a fair position, isn't it? You know, it also uh, helps prevent the defense lawyer from getting up talking about sympathy having nothing to do with the verdict. In fact, in one case, a guy got up, defense lawyer got up and said, you know, Mr. Kennard's right. You can't render a verdict based on sympathy. So the jurors go, we've already heard that. Let's go on. Exactly. (laughs) Back to the sympathy thing. And then you can say if you have somebody like a doctor as a defendant, you could say now sympathy is an emotion, right? Yes. At the end of the case, suppose you find from the facts and the law that this doctor violated standard practice and hurt the plaintiff, but you feel sorry for her. You feel sorry. What would your verdict be? Ms. Jones, well, it would be for the plaintiff. Thank you. Did we all agree on that point as well? Yes. That's about all I can think of to do at that point to neutralize that uh, she's a nice person problem. Right. No, that's great. I, I, I love that. What did you do, um, you know, especially since since you decided not to bring Cody, and it sounds like that worked out um, very well. Did you do anything in terms of um, things with his family members or friends to kind of help the jury get to know 
um, what we what he was like and how things had changed for him. His grandfather made the best witness. He actually was in the custody of his grandparents before this ever happened. For reasons we don't need to go into, his parents were alive, but that's another issue altogether, mm-hmm. which, which the community knew about, by the way. But um, his grandparents are so loving, so nice and wonderful. And I thought maybe the grandmother would make the better witness of those two, <clears throat> but he got up there. He, t- he told about Cody how he was before all this happened, before the wreck. Very active young man, good Christian boy, etc. I saw him making progress, rehab unit. And then he just cried on the witness stand. I mean, he couldn't help himself. And, uh, ooh, it was, ooh, huge. It was huge. He tried to hold it back, but he couldn't. So he gave the best account of before and after and how he was doing than anybody. Yeah, I, f- I feel like that has happened um, to to me several times in terms of, uh, you know, if I've got clients and it's, it's parents. And um, I mean, this happened recently where, you know, all through the case, talking about the hard stuff, working up the case, preparing them for what was going to happen, preparing them for their depositions, you know, the the mother was always the one who was really able to explain things and elaborate on things but and and sort of but sort of keep her cool keep her composure and um the father was always just very kind of short he didn't really go into um too much he he was clearly uncomfortable talking about it It was clearly very painful for him and then in their depositions it just completely flipped (laughs) the mother could barely get a word out she was so upset and um, you know, and the father said more in that deposition than I had ever been able to get him to open up to me about. Um, and so I, I could see that happening at trial where you sort of, you know, this was different. It was in their depositions, but it's similar dynamic where once you get in that formal setting and, you know, it's hard. You're, everything you say is being typed down and people are watching you, how, how things can kind of flip like that. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. So um, I wanted to ask you a little bit, uh, Randy, about uh, the defense that that uh, Dr. Lowry and the uh, and Cane Creek put on, because I, I read somewhere that they, instead of saying that this had sort of built, you know, after he'd been extubated over time, that this was instead a sudden and acute collapse that, that happened very quickly. And obviously, they were claiming they hadn't done anything wrong. So how, how did uh, how did their uh, how did you address their defense. And I was also wondering how you approached uh, cross-examining Dr. Lowry, especially knowing that she's somebody who was, uh, seemed to be well-liked and, and uh, a nice lady. First thing that in our case in chief, we had a wonderful expert. I can't remember who I called, but he was a great uh, family practitioner. We also used the near nose throat doctor, but the family practitioner gave us about 12 red flag warnings before this final event, that it was not a sudden, unexpected outcome. She said for two or three days before this happened, there were warnings. And each time there was a warning, I had a little red flag already made. 
And he, he said he offered up the first time when I said, it was what kind of event was this? And he said, that was a red flag. And I went over to a chart at a time, stuck a red flag on there. And we ended up with about a dozen red flags, things like he was complaining of being short of breath, whatever, you know, things like that. Can't catch his breath, red flag. So that, uh, I think, with hindsight, neutralized the sudden unexpected event defense. Also, on cross-examination of one expert, I used the example of uh, the Titanic sinking. And I said to him, you remember this story about the Titanic, don't you, doctor? And I could feel the defense chairs moving a little bit, but nobody. (laughs) 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 And he said, sure. Now, recall that story about how the Titanic went out and the captain said, we're going to make it to America in five days. (laughs) And it was important to the shipping line that they make it in five days. But that fatal night, doctor, the captain got a warning, a red flag. Icebergs are in the area. And what he could have done, what he could have done is say, okay, I want everybody who wants to come into the main ballroom here, I'm going to make an announcement. And he could have gotten all those passengers in there and said, folks, I know you want to get to America. I know you want to be on time, but there is a report of icebergs in this vicinity. And what we're going to do is we're going to stop and we're going to pause and we're going to wait till daylight and you can all go back to bed. We're going to be late getting to America, but I'd rather be safe than sorry. Okay. Is that all right with everybody? And what do you think they would have said, doctor? (laughs) That's fine. (laughs) Okay. Thank you, doctor. Have a great day. (laughs) So that's that's kind of my silly style of doing things. And, uh, but it, it, you know, so the point was in closing argument, when he was showing these warnings he was giving, they should have paused and not gone full speed ahead with this removal. Should have put it back in. Right. And be safe instead of sorry. Yvonne, what does every successful law firm need? Really great lawyers like me. That is exactly right. Really great lawyers like Yvonne. They also need cases, right? Right. And uh, what's the way we get cases? I think I know where you're going with this, and I'm going to say our website. (laughs) Our website is a big one, and the best website firm out there is Digital Law Marketing. Yvonne, tell our listeners what Digital Law Marketing does. Well, they can help you with things like search engine optimization, pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, content marketing strategies, web design and development, reputation management, which sounds very mysterious. I I definitely need some reputation management. I'd like to find out exactly what that does. We need to look into that one a bit more. Uh, And they also do local search. And I'm sure if you call Mike and Stephanie over at Digital All Marketing, they will tell you what local search means and they'll tell you what all of these things do and how it can help build your law firm and get you cases. Call Mike and Stephanie or look them up at their website, digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. 
It also makes me crazy because I I think about the the first and only time that I was ever like admitted to a hospital. I was like 36, 37 and it was really scary. <laughs> so like you know, I know he had at this point he he'd been in the hospital for about a month before he got he got transferred to to a rehab facility, but it just makes me crazy that, you know, a 17-year-old at the time or anybody, you know, really any age, like that's, it's just scary. Anybody would be be anxious. But the idea that that would explain or was a reason to sort of ignore his his complaints, that just makes me crazy. <laughs> that's, that's the malpractice part. And you've hit it right on the head. You know, it's all right to be anxious, but... Why is he anxious? And you need, you know, you need to find out. Don't just attribute it to the fact that he's 17 years old. Right. You know, I guess that maybe if he'd been a tough football player, professional football player, they would have looked into it closer. Not said he's anxious. You know, who knows? So it is scary being a patient, isn't it? You know, like yeah. You're totally, and that was part of the uh, theme of this case was that you have to be able, the patient has to be able to trust her doctor, his doctor. And another part was, I use this on cross with their expert, doctor, do you agree that the physician-patient relationship is one of great trust? Yes. The patient must have the right to trust his doctor? Yes. And must the doctor believe the patient? Does the patient have a right to be believed by his doctor? Yes. So that's kind of where we were going to, that they didn't believe Cody when he complained about his airway. It's a scary deal being in the hospital for sure. It, it is. And then to be in his situation, so you're not, you know, whether... I think regardless of your age, but I could see how his age could come into play in terms of feeling like what is your place in being able to advocate yourself, advocate for yourself in a situation like that. And, you know, regardless of what your experience is or your age, you know, being, being in the hospital is like, you can't, you can't leave when you want to leave. You can't get up when you want to get up. You can't speak to the doctor or speak to the nurse when you want to speak to the doctor or speak to the nurse. So um, it's just, it's, to your point, and it comes up a lot when we talk to people about medical malpractice cases, is that feeling of trust that you need to have, but that you also sort of have to have because yeah. you can't do what you want to do. Right. Yeah. You know, and I was thinking about this as you were explaining, um, you know, what they're, uh, why they didn't reintubate, and that, that basically you have to just kind of tough it out. And I'm sitting here thinking about this as, you know, from a 17-year-old uh you know, man's standpoint of if they, you know, if you start complaining about not being able to breathe and they say, well, it's just one of those things, you just got to be a little tougher and get through it. Then, you know, it makes it hard for you to go back and say, hey, I've got this problem again. Cause now the doctor's basically saying you're not tough enough. You're not, you're not pushing through like you should, you know, that would be a problem. And I don't, I don't know how much that impacted Cody. He can't tell us, but Reasonably, it could have been back. He may have complained less because of that. 
Exactly. Exactly. Um, I was going to ask you that because I have the list of the experts here. Was the expert who you said was from in family practice, was that uh, Dr. Russell from, yes. from North Carolina? Yes. I, I was thinking he, it says that his practice is in Hendersonville, North Carolina, which is also a small town. So that, uh, that probably played nicely over in, the, in a small town in, in uh, Tennessee. I, you know, Tennessee has a law a statute that you have to prove the standard of care in the community where the defendant practices or a similar community. Wow. You can get, you can get a big, big city doctor to come in who says he's familiar with the standard of care in a small community by virtue of so-and-so referrals or whatever. But to me, it's better to, to at least in addition to that, have somebody from a town like, where you are going to go try the case, you know, just as a jury appeal. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's a, that's a great point. Uh, you know, and I, I didn't understand that um, requirement in Tennessee, but, um, but yeah, it, it totally makes sense why you'd have somebody from a, um, from a small, you know, town in North Carolina. Um, well, I, I wanted to know uh, after the verdict came out, did you have a chance to talk to any of the jurors about, um, you know, what they had seen or what they thought? <laughs> Excuse me for laughing. <laughs> First, uh, I got to share this with you. This went on for five weeks, I guess, and the jury goes out. And in two and a half hours, the court officer comes out and says they've reached the verdict. And I went, oh, oh. Wow. Yeah, and that's not good. <laughs> we have lost. Oh, oh, my, I can't believe it. We have lost. Now, the jury's still back in the jury room. And I said, Your Honor, can we have a few minutes to talk to defense counsel? He said, Sure. He knew why we wanted to talk. We go back in the conference room, and they're all smiling. They're giddy. They think they've won. I think we've lost. I go, well, so how much uh, will you pay? And they mentioned some number, I think to me and something, I don't remember. And then the lawyer made a mistake and said, you have five minutes. I said, five minutes? I have to contact the subrogation carrier. I can't possibly know in five minutes. He said, well, that's all you have. I said, well, forget it. Or me and, and expenses down the drain. I'm going, I, I just got to hear this then. Let's go back in. <laughs> <laughs> so we go in and, and they said 15 million, whatever it was they said. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I said, thank God he only gave me five minutes. Right, yeah, oh, exactly. Oh wow, you're kidding. So they, they rendered their verdict, the amount and everything. And how long did you say? Two and a half hours. Wow. Yeah, that that, I, that is scary. I mean, we sort of have a rule of thumb around uh, our office that once they make it past four to five hours, then you know we're in the ball game. But uh, if they you're, come back shorter than the that, game. then, yeah, then we the start game. to worry. Yeah, no, one hour less, you lose automatically. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, uh, well yeah, so, we did. We did talk to jurors, and uh, they told us. By the way, the four-person was a mathematics teacher at the University of Tennessee Martin branch down the road a little bit, a female. She was the four-person. Anyway, they told us, we decided fault in one hour. 
Wow. All of us agreed for one hour, and then we just talked about the money for an hour and a half. The next thing they told us was, listen, man. <laughs> Kennard, do you know that guy from St. Louis who came over in the limo? Well, <laughs> we were all out on the lawn. This courthouse is, I mean, this courthouse is uh, 50 feet wide, okay? I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. No, they were all out on the lawn. And, he's, and they said he came out, pulled his cell phone out, and yelled in his phone, where are you? <laughs> <laughs> and the limo driver was on the other side of the courthouse, which is maybe 120 feet. He walked around it, and he said, well, get your A blank blank over here now. <laughs> and then the limo pulls around. <laughs> this is right after he got off the stand. <laughs> no. Well, <laughs> I said that was probably worth five million. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh my Don't gosh. <laughs> he forgot that rule. You know, you. Uh, I mean, always assume the jury is watching you because they always are. Yeah. Yeah. Oh uh, my gosh. That's crazy. That's crazy. Well, um, you, you mentioned one thing in there and this is a little different than how we do it in Georgia, but, um, you, that you were going to call, um, the subrogation, um, uh, uh, carrier. And, and so I noticed in the, in, on the pretrial order that, um, an intervening plaintiff was uh, blue cross and blue shield of Tennessee. And so, it, so the past medicals that were 2 million, 200,000 with some change. Was that a, uh, basically a stipulated amount or an amount that, that was how much they uh, were owed or something like that? You know, my memory is not so great on that part. Uh, that number sounds high as to what they actually paid. In Tennessee, you, okay. can, you can prove the actual charges, okay? Okay. Which are always higher than what was paid, right? Right. Prove the actual charges, which you can recover. Then the subrogation will be less than that. But the jury doesn't even know that part uh, in most cases. I just don't remember specifically in this case uh, what the yeah. issue was. But whatever the amount was, I needed, when he said you have five minutes, I need to run, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> by them and get some kind of permission at least get a discussion going so and so how does that work does the does the jury do, does the jury know that that's a sort of an intervening plaintiff and they hear the amount and that it's the health insurance and all that stuff they do if if the judge allows it sometimes there is no evidence about it usually there's no evidence about it this must have been a pretty big number or they wouldn't have interpled, you know, right, but right. normally they don't even know about subrogation. Right. Okay. Nobody's there for the subrogation holder. Okay. Got it. Okay. Well, uh, well, Randy, this has been, uh, been a great talk and, and a fantastic work by you and your team. Uh, I'm just wondering, is there anything else that we haven't talked about this trial that you want to make sure our listeners know about? You know, this uh, you have been a, a great interviewer. <laughs> Very thorough. And uh, I think the teaching points are covered pretty well. And it was a great trial. And I'll just say that uh, the humanity in this case was enormous. 
Cody was a nice boy. His grandparents are wonderful, and that always plays a an important part. And the jury, uh, we were told before we went over there to try. We were told by so-called experts that jury won't be able to pop a million dollars. And uh, so, what a thrill! You know, for a lawyer to hear that kind of verdict with all the problems the case had, seeing a jury rise up like that, doing the right thing. It's just uh, what a wonderful honor that was to be there and experience that. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. I mean, I mean, fantastic work. But, and, and like you said, I mean, a, a, a great family, a great client that you're, you know, helping out. I mean, that, um, that goes so far in trial and, um, and, you know, makes you, makes you feel good about what you do too. Yeah. yeah. And, and not to, not to make light of, of how horrible what um, it is that what happened, I do feel like, like based on the stories you've told us from this trial, that this could be like a sequel to my cousin Vinny, <laughs> but like a civil case. <laughs> I'm just gonna put it out there. If you if you want to add to your um, certified badass resume, yeah, right. screenwriting or <laughs> that's right. Well, it, 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 and it, it does tell me because you you have to be like this when you do what we do, but uh, you have to have fun at trial, even in the most serious of cases. And it's obvious that you uh, you you definitely. Uh, uh, while you take your cases extremely seriously and represent them uh, 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 very well, but uh, you also uh, have some fun at trial. Absolutely. It's a great, great chance to have some fun. Do good at the same time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Randy, this has been just a great, uh, great talk. We really appreciate your time. And I want to remind everybody that we've been talking uh, to Randy Kennard, who's a partner at Kennard Clayton and Beverage. And you can look him up at KennardClaytonAndBeverage.com. The case that we've been talking about is Wade versus Health South King Creek Rehab and Susan Lowry MD. And the verdict was $15,261,070.80. Randy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you both. Thanks, Randy. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our Great Trials podcast com as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website yeah so check those out if you have a trial you would like to be featured on the great trials podcast or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us please email us at info at great Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, 
our podcast is not available for review. We we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go, and Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.